Hello and welcome to the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. My name is Aidan Muir and I'm here with my co-host Leah Heigl and this is episode 57 where we'll be talking about our thoughts on the vertical diet for strength athletes which is a very niche kind of topic <laughs> but something I wanted to have some long-form kind of content on. Um, I wrote a blog post on it years ago that was one of the most viewed posts on the blog for a long period of time as well. So was it? There's a bit of demand for it. Like yeah. it's not like um, I don't think my Instagram followers care as much, but I think there's people who do want to who do want to hear about it or whatever, or just have want to have thoughts on it. And it's a bit of a space where I don't think there's many. I don't know how to describe it. As in, like, there's a lot of people who would either think it's incredible, or there's a lot of people who think it's terrible. Whereas I'm probably in the middle somewhere, so I think there's a space for that kind of content. And Going through it, so like what is the vertical diet? It is a diet that was created by Stan Efferding, who is a relatively or quite a successful bodybuilder and powerlifter. Um, I think he's retired now from that, but like when he was in his in his prime, I think he was known as the strongest bodybuilder in the world at one stage. Um, it's a cool title. Cool title. Yeah, for sure. So he's got like that credential himself in terms of what he's personally accomplished. He's also, he's pretty smart and he's also pretty charismatic and you hear him talk about it and it makes a lot of sense when he does talk about it. Um, going through like what the actual diet is, like the concept, like to understand a vertical diet, you kind of understand what, what he terms a horizontal diet. And a horizontal diet is one that proposes a lot of variety, basically. And a vertical diet is quite the opposite. It's based on a limited number of foods chosen by Stan for specific reasons. And there's two specific foods that make up like the foundation of the diet, but it's, it's quite a limited diet for a few reasons. And why would anyone follow it? Like what are the proposed benefits of it? The proposed benefits quite simply are to optimize gut health, body composition and performance. It's pretty much that simple. And there's a lot of like testimonials and stuff like that in terms of like top level strongmen and a lot of top level athletes have used it. General population have lost weight, improved performance, those kind of things. And probably the poster boy for it, like in his strongman prime, was Hathor Bjornsson, so the mountain from Game of Thrones. He, when he won World's Strongest Man, like he was following this diet. I don't know what he's done since then, if he's still following it or whatever, but like um, he followed it for multiple years and it was a game changer for him for a few reasons that we'll kind of talk through as we go. Yeah, so the foundation of this diet is probably my worst nightmare, and that's red meat and white <laughs> rice, <laughs> the opposite of what I do. Um, but that's that's kind of forming the foundation. And the reason why that is, so red meat is chosen because it is, it's a good quality protein source that is also quite micronutrient rich. So it's higher in things like iron, B vitamins, zinc, and, and other bits and pieces. Um, and then white rice is chosen specifically because it is e an easy to digest form of carbohydrates. It allows you to have heaps of carbohydrates without making you feel too bloated or too full. So it's just an easy way to consume those kinds of calories. Um, secondary to that, we have the horizontal component of the diet, which focuses more on making up micronutrients. So you're relying on red meat and white rice for most of your calories and macros, but there is a small focus on micronutrients as well. Um, well, not just a small focus, there is quite an emphasis on it, um, but it's just a small handful of foods that you're actually getting those micronutrients from. Um, so that includes mostly low FODMAP fruits and vegetables and low FODMAP specifically to limit gas buildup and limit kind of bloating and fullness. 
Um, and then there's other components. So things like dairy, eggs, salmon, poultry, and olive oil that are all included once again to meet those micronutrient requirements. So basically the horizontal component is designed specifically for that reason, micros, um, but ideally you just want to consume just enough to meet your requirements and then the rest of your calories coming from red meat and white rice. Yeah, and that angle like with the horizontal component makes a lot of sense to me to a certain degree in terms of like imagine using a strong man as an example, like somebody who's like almost 200 kilos with a high training load, how do they get enough food in without resorting to just a bunch of junk food? Yeah, like, not at that point, not everything needs to be super nutrient dense and yeah. be fully fruits and veggies and whole yeah. grains and stuff. And I guess we're going to talk about that a bit, but like even yeah. just from the carbohydrate amount, like they're often consuming a lot of carbohydrates. And like that's why the white rice, I guess, is there because like, or mm-hmm. not I guess, that is why it is there because people aren't going to feel as full or as bloated or as whatever as if they had other other sources of carbohydrate, particularly if there's food intolerances involved, which I, I do think is actually quite a factor there, but we'll probably talk about that later. The first thing we're going to do is go through some criticisms of it, like I guess, because there's, there's a few things that stand out to me as to why, even though I just talked about some positive aspects of it, um, why don't I recommend it to people? Like, why don't why do I do something differently? So, starting at looking at it from that perspective, the the easy criticism, I guess, is the red meat component. Um, like, I, I don't look at it from the same angle that you necessarily look at it. <laughs> but like, there's there's a few things. Like, my first thought is you can get the exact same results utilizing other protein sources. Let's be clear. Stan doesn't say don't eat other protein sources ever. Like, he he's still like you can have chicken, you can have fish, you can have all these other protein sources on the diet. But he is very clear, like really emphasizing red meat. Whereas I, I do think you could have far less red meat, still get the same results. And it's particularly if your total calorie and macro intake was the same. Um, using another example, I heard him on a podcast talking about how like when he was in a bodybuilding prep, he swapped some red meat for tilapia, like the white fish. So like in America, they always talk about that for bodybuilders. Yeah. And he got weaker and his performance dropped off. And his coach was like... I could tell something was wrong. <laughs> and like his friend was like, Stan's been eating tilapia, <laughs> like dobbing him in. <laughs> and I'm like, that's like king anecdotal evidence. But it's like, to be fair, like if you switch from red meat to white fish, you would change your macro consumption. You'd have less fat. You'd have less total calories. Like yeah. anyway, um, there's a lot of things that go on there. Like assuming calorie and macro intake was the same, I'd assume you'd get very similar results. Um, the micronutrient aspect of red meat falls apart a little bit when you consider that you're eating such a large volume of food. That's like even though it's slightly higher in like certain micronutrients like iron and B vitamins, magnesium, all those kind of things. Like if you're eating that much meat, like you're getting so much of that anyway. Um, and I'll talk about that more too. But the other aspects is like cost. It's cheaper to have less red meat. It's way cheaper. Like other other protein sources are cheaper. So obviously that's not a criticism at the elite level if somebody's investing heaps of money. But for most people, that is a factor. And then the other thing is health, like, and the ethical perspective. From the health perspective, like, bowel cancer, like, that's a factor. There's so many, like, red meat's obviously complex because of this concept of healthy user bias, which is, like, people who eat more red meat typically do less exercise, drink more alcohol, they're more likely to smoke, and all, all of those kinds of things. But when you factor all of those things in and, like, try and, like, make all variables even there still seems to be an increased risk of bowel cancer. Mm-hmm. There's still things that are present. Um, and then the ethical thing, like that's that's a complex thing. So, oh, that's, that's on an individual, like non-nutrition basis. But I do think about the environmental yeah. consequences of too many people following like such a high intake of red meat. 
yeah, diet. Yeah, I agree. Um, and using the micronutrients thing as an example, like one of the reasons why I get a bit nitpicky about that and being like, it's kind of like weird to focus too much on that, is that white rice has almost no micronutrients. Mm. Like it, it literally has almost no micronutrients. So it's like a large portion of the diet has almost no micronutrients. The other one has like more, but slightly more than like the other protein sources. It's like, why do we focus on that there and then ignore it in another place? And like there is explanations for that and everything like that, but I'm just making my case as to why I don't think it matters that much, particularly when you've got such a large abundance of food and it's all relatively micronutrient rich apart from the white rice. Um, the other aspect is that like the horizontal component is mostly low FODMAP. It's not all exclusively FOD, low FODMAP, but it is mostly low FODMAP to limit that bloating and gas buildup, which allows people to eat more total food. Um, that's why it's there. But going back to one of the benefits I talked about was that it's proposed to help optimize gut health. But we, we can see from another perspective that being low FODMAP unnecessarily or long-term has implications potentially or most likely for negative gut health overall in terms of changing the bacterial content of the microbiome in a probably negative fashion. So if I was looking to optimize gut health, I also wouldn't necessarily be going low FODMAP long-term, particularly if I didn't need to. Mm -hmm. Like if there were certain aspects like things that were clearly causing bloating and stuff like that, it's a completely different topic. But that's coming back to even taking that aspect out and just the overall general theme is like, there are things that could be needlessly restrictive for certain people, as in they wouldn't necessarily need to follow those specific arbitrary rules or anything like that to get the same results, which is why you could argue for more individualization in amongst everything else I just talked about. So positive aspects of it. Yeah, let's look, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's go through that. Yeah, because I feel like that's quite a few downsides, but there are re- there are reasons why people follow this diet and it does work for some people. So um, positive aspects would be one, it's easy to eat lots of calories, specifically from like lots of whole foods. So obviously they're not having a bunch of like non-nutritious, non-nutritious junk food that's super highly processed to make up these high calorie diets. So it is a way to be predominantly whole food based and eat a lot of calories in an easy way. That's a plus. Um, It can also, like we've said, reduce bloating. So because you're using low FODMAP veg, you're not having a ton of high FODMAP grains and legumes and and all those things that can cause bloating, um, there's going to be likely reduced bloating just generally. But I don't want anyone to like conflate that with gut health. Like you talked about, like going so being so restrictive with your diet and eating only low FODMAP foods is not what we would consider optimal for gut health. And just because it's reducing gut symptoms does not mean it's improving your gut health. And I think those things can often be confused. But a positive is that it does reduce bloating. And um, third would be that it is easy to adjust. So like with any very simple diet, you can just kind of go from if you want to reduce your calorie intake and you're eating five of the same meals every day, you're kind of based on rice, red meat, few veggies, you could just take one meal away. So yeah. without even calorie counting, without fussing about kind of uh, calories in peanut butter versus other things like you you can just decrease or increase quantities So it's going to be super simple for you to adjust based on whether you want to gain weight, lose weight, maintain, et cetera. Um, And I mean, it does have a good focus on micronutrients as well. So that's a plus side. Um, And realistically, there are no downsides from just a body composition and performance perspective. If you're meeting all of your micronutrient 
needs. You're getting in adequate calories and protein and all of these things and you're feeling good. There's no reason why it would get in the way of those of those things. Um, but obviously there are all those criticisms that you yeah. mentioned previously that do kind of weigh on the other side. Yeah, I, I think that's like the easiest way to balance it in terms of being like there is no actual downside for performance or body composition mm. that I can see. It's just that there's a lot of things that you could get the same results in a different way that might be more suitable or whatever. Um, and the other argument is simplicity. Like it's, it's easier for some people to follow that. Um, even just from another perspective, like when we talk about FODMAPs with people, it's pretty confusing. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas like if somebody's like, oh, Stan's just given me like a list of foods that I can't eat. <laughs> yeah, it's easy. It's a lot easier. <laughs> um, anyway, so like that's one thing. Um, I guess we'll summarize basically. So like overall, I do think it's a pretty simple and it is an effective way to approach nutrition and body composition. I often think about like there's certain people I work with who eat over 5,000 calories and struggle to get there. And I do sometimes think I'm like, it would actually be easier to utilize an approach like this. Mm -hmm. And with some of those people, cause I'm like, well, they don't have food intolerances. Like they do feel full. They feel bloated. They've probably got like very low level intolerances that kind of like make a bigger difference because they're eating so much. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I want to go through the complexity of like FODMAPs and stuff like them. Like sometimes I'm drawn to like a simpler approach. I wouldn't necessarily use this exact one, but there's things I take away from it as well. Um, even other little things, like if I've got somebody doing a competition, I'll often give them rice the day before rather than pasta, just on the off chance that they feel less sure. bloated. Like there's like little things like that that like I think are particularly useful. But then there's the other perspective of like, I wouldn't necessarily encourage that much red meat. Like that's just, <laughs> it's a big thing that I can't really get past or necessarily intentionally limiting your variety of plant-based foods to that extent unnecessarily. Like if there is certain things that do clearly get in the way of eating that many calories without feeling great or whatever it is, I'm like, oh, that, that makes sense. But like if, you, if, you, if you're going to feel great with another approach, I wouldn't unnecessarily limit that as well yeah and even like coming off that kind of diet like say you do it for six months and you're only eating low FODMAP foods yeah coming off that and wanting to do something else are you then going to get way like worse IBS symptoms coming off a diet like that because you've reduced the health of your gut microbiome so yeah. that's a potential downside yeah and like another thing that I haven't really touched on too much but like it's an interesting point that Stan makes I, I don't want to um what's the word like I don't want to speak for him and say the wrong thing but like he has talked about this concept of if you eat the same foods over and over you get better at digesting them and i'd never heard anyone talk that way because in the ibs world we do think about from that kind of perspective of if you don't have something for ages when you do yeah. <laughs> we, we struggle to digest yeah. it but he's just like doubled down on that and being like oh if you only have like the same five foods over and over for example you might get even better at that and like i think he's he once again, I don't want to misquote him, but I think he's taken that to even include other non-plant-based foods like red meat and stuff like that. So sure. like, don't quote me on that, but like, that's one of the concepts that I believe is kind of being referred to here, which is an interesting idea. Hard to fact check him on the red meat thing, but it actually makes sense for the plant-based stuff. It is interesting, but yeah. Yeah, it's just how much of that actually matters as well, but it's an interesting thought. Um, the final thing, once again, is it's pretty restrictive overall in terms of like, you actually are quite limited in terms of the foods. Like it doesn't give you as much flexibility. Um, yeah those, those are my thoughts on it so pros and cons any other thoughts anything else we want to wrap up on no i reckon we wrap up so yeah. this has been episode 57 of the ideal nutrition podcast thanks for tuning in